friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. So now let's go to our sermon this morning. So may I request everyone to please rise from their seats right now. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, verse 4. Now at the count of three, we will all read together aloud. One, two, read. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this wonderful time that you've given us, O God, to be able to study your word. And our prayer, O Lord, is that you might minister to us in a very special way. Lord, you have called us to yourself. You have called us to salvation. But you have also called us to sanctification. And today is a message that would truly sanctify us if we do not resist the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, for open hearts and open minds. May we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. May we not be selective in so far as our obedience is concerned, but with every instruction, with every command, with every precept or principle that you give to us, may we willingly submit and yield to your will. I pray for myself, O God, that you might make me your mouthpiece. Allow me to have the voice of a prophet so that as I speak, Lord, I will even go beyond the manuscript that was prepared. Speak to the very hearts of your people. And whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's uh, be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, the title of this morning's sermon is The Hope of Mourning. Now, there's something I'm going to share to you which might be quite intriguing, but this is my opening statement. Mourning is a necessary part of the Christian life. Mourning is a necessary part of the Christian life. Now, allow me to be able to expound and amplify that to you so that we do not misunderstand what I am saying here. However, I'd like to be able to say also that mourning is never the end of our lives. In fact, if we take a look at this verse of Scripture, it says, blessed are those who mourn. And you already know that the word blessed means happy. So it's quite intriguing that you have mourning on one hand, and then the Bible says that happy are you when you mourn. And basically, what that tells us is that no matter how much a believer may go through in terms of sorrow or suffering for his faith, hope is never extinguished. You can go through the most excruciating, most horrible, most painful moments in your life, and yet there will always be brightness and hope for you. So if there's one exhortation or admonition 
to this particular sermon, it would be this. We are not to lose hope. No matter what happens, we are not to lose hope. So let me share to you what we will be tackling this morning, just to give you a bird's eye view of how this sermon will flow. So first of all, we're going to talk about the happiness of mourners. So once again, that's really a, a word play, so to speak. But then again, there is truth to that, which we will expound later on. So what we will be doing is we will take a look at a description of mourning, and then we will take a look at what it is not, therefore its negative meaning, what it is, the positive meaning of it, then the reason for mourning, and then we're also going to talk about genuine mourning because there is such a thing as fake mourning. Now, we will go through some self-examination questions and then we're also going to talk about the result of mourning. The second part, of course, deals with the reward of the mourners. Now, obviously, there's a mouthful that we have to discuss here. So I've decided to subdivide our sermon into two parts. We will only tackle only up to letter D, which is the reason for mourning. So let's dive into our text right now. And let's take a look at the happiness of mourners at this time. So first of all, let's come up with a description. As I mentioned to you, to mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. So there is really a chronological order here. There is a reason why the Lord Jesus Christ started with blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he follows it up with happy are those who mourn. Why do you think he did that? That is very intentional and very logical as well. Poverty in spirit provides us the intellectual understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy. Once again, poverty of spirit provides us the intellectual understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy. Now, in the case of mourning, what it supplies on the table is the emotional understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy. So on one hand, you have the intellectual, and on the other, you have the emotional. Now, both things are very important. True religion, listen well. True religion, according to the Bible, is not a choice between the intellectual and the emotional. Now, you and I know that there are many groups, Christian groups, that go uh, to extremes. Some would merely focus on the intellectual side of Christianity, and there is definitely an intellectual side of it. On the other hand, there are some people who merely focus on the emotional. Now, there is an emotional side to Christianity. Both are very important to us. And so, when we talk about true religion, it is actually a compound of both. It is a compound of both. Knowledge, in fact, gives birth to emotions. I recall the story of one person who was sitting down in a congregation. I think it was a conference of sorts. And so, there were two preachers who were assigned. And so, this person was observing how the two conducted themselves in the matter of preaching. 
And so later on, after the conference, he was interviewed and he was asked, what do you think of the two preachers? And so he said of the first preacher, well, the first preacher is all light, no heat. In other words, a lot of doctrine, a lot of knowledge, but no passion. And then he was asked about the second preacher. Well, what about the second preacher? Well, the second preacher is all heat, no light. In other words, he was full of passion, but he was speaking about a lot of very dangerous, in fact, very heretical things. So basically what that tells you is that we need both. We need light and we need heat. That is what composes true religion because intellectualism without passion or without emotion becomes dead orthodoxy. And that's how we see some churches, unfortunately. There's so much knowledge, there's so much grounding in the Word of God. When you ask them about certain things re regarding theology, they know it all. And yet, sadly, there is no passion. They have not been deeply impacted by the knowledge that they know. And so we don't want to end up in dead orthodoxy. On the other hand, too much emotionalism can end up in fanaticism. And once again, that may not be good because we can be uh, religiously emotional about certain things. As somebody once said, you can be sincere, but you can actually be sincerely wrong. So once again, we need to have a balance. And the Christian life really is a balancing act. And we need to really be, be very careful. We need to be very discerning so that we have both. We have light and we have heat. Now, let's define it negatively. What it is not. What mourning is not. Now, a lot of meanings have been proposed as to the meaning of mourning. But we, before we go to the, to the exact meaning, let us define it negatively or what it is not. First of all, it is not a mourning which leads to psychological impairment or mental disorder. So let me say it again. It is not a mourning which leads to psychological impairment or mental disorder. Now, psychologists have studied bereavement and they tell us that unnatural sor sorrow can actually have many factors. But one of the major, major factors would be selfishness. That is one of the major factors. A self-centered person uses other people, even the closest loved ones, to make his own life safe and pleasant. And so what happens when, for example, a loved one dies? Now, there's so much grieving and mourning, obviously, but the grieving and mourning is not so much for the person who lost his life. The grieving in the morning is more of self-pity because this person was providing comfort and was, in fact, a safe place, so to speak. And so it is not a morning which leads to psychological impairment or mental disorder. Secondly, it is not a guilt trip. Now, some people have this guilt trip. I recall this woman who used all of her lifetime savings to buy her husband the most expensive casket. She put her financial future 
into the grave, so to speak, with her husband. And why do you think she did that? Well, it was not really because she loved her husband, but it was because when her husband was sick, she said a lot of bad and wicked things against her husband. And so to atone for her sin, she bought this very expensive funeral casket. Now, there's this other story of a man who would visit the grave of his wife practically almost every day, almost without miss. Whatever the weather was, whether it was cold or hot, whether it was snowing or it was summer, whether it was, there was rain or sunshine, he would always be there. And why do you think he was doing that? Once again, it was not because of love, but he felt guilty because he had not treated his wife very well. Some of you may have heard the story of the great Samuel Johnson, who would always go out into the rain and have, you know, have the rain pour on his head. And he was doing that because he felt it was his way of atoning for his disobedience to his own father. Now, again, let me just mention that mourning is not a guilt trip. So if you really take a look at it, mourning has nothing to do in terms of our human relationship. But mourning here, listen well, mourning here has everything to do with our relationship with God. So that's something that we need to remind ourselves. It has nothing to do with our human relationships, but everything to do with our relationship with God. Now, it might involve uh, certain human factors, but then again, primarily, it has to do with our relationship with God. Remember, once again, the sin of David when he committed adultery. In one of the Psalms, when he made this confession before the Lord, what did he say? Against thee, Lord, against thee have I sinned. Now, he definitely sinned against Uriah. He definitely sinned against Bathsheba. But he realized primarily his sin was unto the Lord. And that's something we need to realize as well in our lives. Now, let's go to a positive meaning, what it is. Now, to eliminate improbable meanings and to come up with an accurate definition, once again, we need to go back to the historical settings. The settings provide for us the definition of what mourning here is all about. Now, to be able to go back to the historical context, we need to answer three very important questions. First, what would happen in the interim period before the second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom? Now, some of you, if you did not attend the previous sermons, you probably did not catch my explanation on the interim period as well as the millennium. So allow me to just review what we studied previously, just very shortly. First of all, the millennial kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, is the prophesied earthly reign of the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. And some people fail to realize this because we all think that when we die, we just simply go to heaven and earth will no longer have any connection with us. Now, that is so far from the truth because actually earth will still be very much a part of the believer's life. In fact, again, going back to the Lord's Prayer, how does the Lord's Prayer go? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So God still has a plan for earth, and we will be included in that plan as well. So we're talking about the earthly reign of Jesus Christ. It's called the millennial kingdom, and Jesus will reign for 1,000 years after the second coming. And so the second coming, then the millennium takes place. Now, in the meantime, before the second coming, there is what is called as the interim period. Now, what is the interim period? Just three things to remember. First of all, it was the time when Jesus Christ was doing his earthly ministry. We find it in the Gospels. Secondly, the interim period also involves the dispensation of the church. We belong to that period as well because we are the church. Finally, after the rapture, because we will be raptured if you are a genuine Christian, you will be caught up in the clouds, you will be with the Lord, with Him forever in eternity. But right after that, you have the tribulation period. In the tribulation period, there will be some people who will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, the greatest harvest that will take place would be in the tribulation period. So you have the interim period composed of those three periods, the Gospels, the church, and the tribulation. That's the interim period. Now, why do I make mention of that? Because Christ has not yet come. And obviously, we need to ask the question, well, if Christ hasn't come yet, so what do we do here on earth? Or what's going to happen to us? What will be our situation? Well, during these times, believers will suffer for their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Some would actually be persecuted. Now, you and I know that persecution can, can go from light to heavy persecution. In our case, I think, in our own country, the kind of persecution we experience is just merely a, a tickling kind of persecution because what happens is oftentimes we, we become the oddball among our friends. When we come to Christ, so we start talking about the Bible, we start talking about Jesus Christ, and our friends think that we're odd, or we've gone to the boondock, something has happened to our brains, and so we're persecuted. Sometimes we lose our friends. Sometimes what happens is we might lose even a business deal because we don't want to compromise. We want to be honest. And so we lose some, some business deals on the side. We could lose a job, for example. So that's part of the reality menu of the Christian life. Now, of course, in other countries, you go to the Middle East, right now, there's a mighty revival taking place in the Middle East. And you know what? The believers there are paying a very steep price. Some of you have seen it on Facebook and on CNN. Some of them have been impaled on a stake, ancient style. Some of them have been killed by, by firing squad. Some of them have been beheaded. I mean, just because we don't experience that in our country doesn't mean it's not happening in other countries. It's happening in China. It's happening in Africa. Believers are mourning, so to speak, because of these persecutions taking place. So that's the first uh, answer to that question. Now, we have another question here. 
what was the prevailing historical situation of the Jews that would produce mourning. Well, you go back in time to the Gospels, what happened to the Jews? They were under the Roman Empire. They were under Roman domination. Now, why did that happen? Well, as a result of their sins. They had not yet repented of their sins. And so because of their national sin, because of their apostasies, because of their religious syncretism, because of their unfaithfulness to God, God was allowing them to be trampled upon by the Romans. Now, of course, you and I know that was not the only time that this happened. This happened with the Assyrian captivity. God chastised particularly the northern kingdom for their apostasies. They came up with two places of worship when they already understood that the place of worship was only in Jerusalem. But they came out with religious centers, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Both were considered immoral by God. And so they were brought into Assyrian captivity. The sister, the southern kingdom, however, did not learn the lesson from their northern kingdom brothers. They continued on in their apostasies as well. And of course, they had this evil, wicked king by the name of Manasseh who did evil things, who even sacrificed his own children. Can you imagine that? And because of that, they went into Babylonian captivity. So if you think about this, there was mourning on their part. Why? Because they had sinned against God and because God was judging them for their sins. I would like to be able to say that we need to do the same thing. We need to be mourning for the sins of our own country. And there are a lot. Just very recently, there's been a huge debate right now because of the Soji bill. And so right now, we're really just trying to copy the West. We want to be politically correct. I know in the United Kingdom, for example, one, one good pastor friend of mine, they had a thriving Christian school. In fact, it was voted as a model school in London. And yet right now, they closed down. Why do you think that they closed down? Well, first of all, the government required them to have a separate comfort room for the so-called third sex. Now, you and I know, as far as the Bible is concerned, there's no such thing as the third sex. Either you're a male or you're female. That's how it is in the Bible. But then people have perverted God's creation of gender. And right now, they're even saying you should not name the gender of a baby. So what do we do? Do we call a baby an it until he makes a choice whether he's a man or a woman? No, that, that doesn't happen in so far as the kingdom of God is concerned. But unfortunately, we're, our, our view of things have been, has been so skewed and so perverted that the kind of things that are happening right now in our world is really crazy. Now, they also closed down their school because they were required to give sex education to nursery students. Can you imagine that? giving sex education to nursery students. I mean, this is the world that you and I are living in. And guess what? The Philippines is following suit. In fact, in other areas, we're excelling, so to speak, when it comes to sin or immorality. 
We are now, in fact, Cebu province has become the cybersex capital of the world, sad to say. Many fishermen, all right, if you go to Lapu-Lapu, many of the fishermen have abandoned their, their bankas. They have abandoned their small boats. Why? Because they're in the cybersex industry. It's more profitable for them than going out into, into the sea and, you know, catching some fish. We need to mourn for that. And that's exactly the reason why the Jews of that time were mourning. Take a look at Jeremiah 9 verse 1, how Jeremiah mourned the sins of his nation. He said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. By that time, Babylon had already invaded them. In Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4, Ezekiel, by the way, was already in exile. He was already in Babylon. And here's what the Lord said to him. Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. And so there were these people who belonged to the godly remnant and they were crying and they were weeping because of the sins of the nation. The godly remnant of Jews likewise mourned because they themselves had offended the holiness of God. Take a look at Psalm 119, 136. Here's what it says. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Now, the application here is we should likewise mourn when we have offended the holiness of God. Allow me to share to you a quotation from Warren Worsby. And this is what he says. If you want to know a person's character, find out what makes him laugh and what makes him weep. What we laugh at and what we weep over indicates our values of life. And values are a part of maturity. Let me give you an illustration. There was this train accident that took place in Great Britain. There were a lot of injuries and there were deaths. In one particular car train, there was a dead mother, but the child actually survived. The child, however, was probably a toddler, not knowledgeable about what was really happening. And so the rescuers came in, and because the mother was dead, the rescuers pulled this, this child away from the mother. Now, when, when the child was pulled away from, from the mother, the child started to laugh, and the child started to play. Obviously, the child was unaware of what happened to his mother. But then here's what happened. He was holding on to a, a candy. The candy was taken away from his hand by the rescuers. And guess what? He started to cry. That is a picture at times of our values. Sometimes we laugh when we should be weeping. And we weep when in fact, we should be laughing. Sometimes we have wrong values. And this has to do with spiritual maturity. 
spiritual maturity causes us to be more vulnerable to genuine spiritual sorrow. All right? Spiritual maturity means we're more vulnerable, more vulnerable rather, to genuine, to genuine spiritual sorrow. Now, third question, what made Jesus weep and mourn during his earthly ministry? I think this is really telling, and this will indicate to us a very important thought. This would allow us to zero in on what Jesus meant by mourning. Now, what is the shortest verse of Scripture in the Bible? Jesus what? Jesus wept. That is the shortest verse in the New Testament. And by the way, weeping is not a sign of weakness. Jesus Christ was called the man of sorrows. Actually, it's quite intriguing because if you go to the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ was anointed with the oil of gladness. So Jesus Christ actually was a joyful person, yet there were seasons of sorrow on the part of the Son of Man. That is why he was called the Man of Sorrows. Now, why did Jesus weep? First of all, Jesus wept because of Israel's lostness and unbelief. He was rejected as Messiah. Jesus Christ came to fulfill Old Testament prophecies, and he was there to present himself as the king of the Jews. He could have actually started the millennial kingdom. He could actually have started the earthly reign, but he was rejected. As he was descending down from the Mount of Olives, presenting himself to the people, the people initially were saying, Hosanna in the highest. But later on, they said, crucify him. And so here's how Jesus responded to the rejection. Look at Luke 19, beginning at verse 41, please. It says, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus was there in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He was saying, here am I. I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I am your Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. And yet, the people of Israel said, we have nothing to do with you. Next, please. Jesus wept. He wept because they missed the day of their visitation. And the interesting part here is that the, the messianic anticipation was really high at that time. And why was it high? Because they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. They were being taxed heavily. They were reduced to poverty, oftentimes. And because of that, they wanted the Messiah to come. So they were excited. They were anticipating the Messiah to come. Messiah comes, but he spells out the requirements of the kingdom, which 
which requires repentance, and they did not want to repent. They wanted the kingdom of heaven. They wanted the earthly, physical, literal, Davidic kingdom, but they wanted to live on with their sins. And because of that, they were rejected. They hated Christ. Why? Because Christ made holy and righteous requirements, which unfortunately they were not willing to give in. Now, there was one other occasion wherein Jesus wept. When did Jesus weep? You recall perhaps what happened with Lazarus. Lazarus was in the grave for, for about four days already. And Jesus wept. He saw Mary weeping. He saw Martha weeping. And he wept. Why? Because he saw the effects, the foul effects of sin, that it brings about death. It brings about sorrow. It brings about mourning. And Jesus empathized with Mary and Martha, and he empathized with everybody else. And he wept. He wept. He knew that, that sin had brought an, a life of misery. It had upset life and made, made life unhappy. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you talk about the misery all over the world, the misery that we find all over the world, the root of that really is sin. If not for the sin of Adam and Eve, we will not be suffering in the same way that we are suffering right now. A lot of young people are killing themselves. That's very sad. And um, this is backed up by statistics. They did a survey in our country, and they found out the loneliest people in our own country are the millennials. They're the ones who have the highest suicide rates, and we're no stranger to that. We've seen that in the newspapers. For the past few years, there was somebody uh, from, a from the ACT building who jumped and threw himself to the ground and died. Somebody also threw himself in a mall. I mean, it's happening. And we ask ourselves, why? Why are these things taking place? And once again, it is really sin. The root of all of this is really sin. So in terms of application, how should we mourn? Well, first of all, we should be mourning for our unsaved loved ones. Because if they do not repent, if they do not come to Christ, if they do not receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they will be damned forever in hell. Hell is a real place. Some people may want to deny it. Some people may want to say that, well, that's not going to happen. But you know what? Our denial will not be able to delete the truth of God's Word. Secondly, we must mourn for the state of this world, the sins, the harmful consequences, the wars, the deterioration of nations, the immorality going on. Do you know that there was a three-year-old who contracted gonorrhea because she was raped by a 17-year-old boy? Shouldn't we be mourning for that? There was a man who was known to have to have had sex with his own mother. Shouldn't that cause us to mourn that the world is turning out this way? Just very recently, in Denmark, somebody married an animal. 
I mean, my goodness, this world is getting crazier and crazier. There was also this woman who, was, who as a child was raped by her own brother. And even though she was the victim, she was called a prostitute. And guess what? Well, she turned out to be a prostitute, and later on, she had a priest as her own boyfriend. That's the kind of thing, that's the kind of misery that is happening all over the world. And you and I should be mourning. We should be weeping because of these things. We should not be laughing and enjoying these things. But there are certain people who are so mentally, spiritually deceased that they enjoy actually this perversion. Now, so if we come up with a definition of this, by the way, we must weep for the backslidden as well. Those people who have apostatized, we need to weep for people like Joshua Harris. We need to weep for people like Marty Sampson. We need to weep for them. And so let me come up with a rather comprehensive definition of mourning. It is the expression of sorrow as a result of persecution for one's faith or sorrow for national and individual sins and its negative consequences. So let me say it once again. It is the expression of sorrow as a result of persecution for one's faith or sorrow for national and individual sins and its negative consequences. Now, the Greek word here for mourning is the Greek word pentheuo, which speaks of the strongest and the most severe, the deepest and most heartfelt grief. And this was generally reserved for people who have lost a loved one. A couple of weeks ago, my wife received an overseas call, and she was met with loud wailing, bawling, and weeping. Why? Because this brother uh, was about to visit Cebu to visit his father. And yet, unfortunately, God took his father home before he could even come to Cebu. And he was weeping loudly. That's the Greek word that is being used here. It is a weeping. It is a bowling out. It is severe. It is a deep, heartfelt grief. By the way, it is in the present participle in the Greek, which indicates continuous action. Martin Luther uh, penned this very wonderful quotation. He said, the Christian's life is a continuous act of repentance and contrition. Let me say it again. The Christian's entire life is a continuous act of repentance and contrition. How much should we be repenting? Well, here's the thing. We should be repenting every single day of our lives. How many times do you repent, Pastor Emil? Let me tell you, I repent every single day. Because you may not sin against God in terms of your actions, maybe not even with your words, but you can actually sin against God in your thoughts, in your intentions, in your motives. And that being the case, you offend the holiness of God. So confession and repentance should actually be a daily thing. Sometimes our problem is we have gotten so used to sin that we no longer consider it sin. Our conscience has become seared. Our emotions have become numbed. 
And even though we offend God, there's no longer any conviction whatsoever. We need to bring back that tenderness of spirit in our hearts. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And if ever we offend God, if ever we quench or grieve the Holy Spirit, we need to confess that before God. Now remember this, restoration is immediate. Amen? It is immediate. The moment I confess, the moment I repent, I am immediately restored back in fellowship with God. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. Amen? I get to start with a clean slate all over again. So the problem sometimes is we're holding on to our sin. We don't want to repent. We, no, we don't want to give up our sin. We want to linger on. And the result of that is a hardening of one's heart. In fact, what could happen in a place like this, this sermon is being preached. It's the same sermon, but it could have an entirely different effect with two kinds of people. For somebody who's not receptive to the Word of God, his heart could be hardened. But for somebody who is sensitive, his heart could actually melt. Same sermon, but different responses, different reactions. It's just like when the sun, the sunlight hits, for example, uh, the wax, what do you think will happen to the wax? The wax will melt. But then, if the sun hits clay, for example, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to harden. So again, it really depends on the heart. And we need to have a sensitive heart. This is the call of God. This is what, what God wants. And by the way, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is just sorrow. But Again, it's not the kind of sorrow that we can call as genuine repentance. And here, I'd like to bring forth to you the example of Judas and Peter. Judas betrayed the Lord. Peter denied the Lord. Not much difference, actually, when it comes to their sins. They both were unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how do we know that Judas only had remorse? In fact, here's my disagreement with the King James Version because it says Judas repented. Wrong translation. Because what he had was remorse, emotional sorrow for what he had done. But he, did he turn back to God? Did he go to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness? No. What did he do? Committed suicide. In the case of Peter, what happened? Well, he denied the Lord. The rooster crowed. And guess what? When the rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter locked. Their, their eyes became locked because Jesus stared at Peter. Now think about this. What if you were Peter at that time? What if, if the Lord Jesus Christ stared with you, not with, with eyes of anger, but eyes which, which were, were filled with so much love and so much emotion, and the eyes of Jesus Christ were probably telling Peter, Peter, see, I told you. You said you, you were willing to die for me? Well, look at what you just did. You denied me just three times, just right now. And Jesus stared at Peter, and guess what? The Bible says Peter wept bitterly, and he repented. And praise God, he was restored by the Lord. I don't know if you know the story about one Sunday school teacher who asked the children, what do you think is repentance? And so one child replied, one boy said, 
Well, mom, repentance is sorrow for sin. And then another lady, a young, a young girl, raised her hands and said, excuse me, genuine repentance is sorrow for sin enough for you to quit. Genuine sorrow for sin enough for you to quit. In other words, you can just have sorrow, but if you're not doing anything about that sorrow, that's not really repentance. That's not genuine mourning. Now, why should we be mourning? Well, a man mourns because he has some understanding of what sin means to God, of God's abhorrence and hatred of it. It stabs the heart of God. Sometimes we forget that we are in a father-son or a father-daughter relationship with God. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And by the way, adoption in the Bible is different from our modern-day understanding of adoption. We always think of people who are adopted as second-class children, but that is not true in the Scriptures. When the Bible speaks about adoption, it speaks about you having equal rights with a legitimate son or with a legitimate daughter. That is why the Bible says that because we are sons and daughters of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? What Christ has, we have. This is really, we have been born into a family relationship with God. He is our Father. In fact, the Bible says we can cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is an Aramaic word which means Daddy or Papa. And that is the kind of relationship we have with the Lord. When Jesus spoke to, to the disciples, when he talked about abiding in the vine, he said, I speak to you no longer as servants, but I speak to you as friends. Jesus was saying, you're my friends. And that's what we need to understand. We're not just servants of God, which that is true. We really are servants and slaves of God, but we are also friends of Christ. And let me ask, ask you this question. How have we been treating our BFF? How have we been treating our best friend forever? And that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Christ, in so far as he is concerned, gave us everything that we needed for life and living so that you and I could have eternal life. He sacrificed his own life. He was battered, he was beaten, a crown of thorns were placed on his head, he was slapped, he was scourged, he was nailed to the cross, the most excruciating kind of torture. Jesus went through that. For what reason? For himself, so that he could get glory? No, friends, God was glorious. Jesus, the Son of God, was glorious already in the Old Testament, even from time immemorial. Jesus did not need more glory. He was already glorious. So why did he die on the cross? Why did he pay for our sins? It was because of love. And here's our proper response. The Bible says, we love because he first loved us. This is a love relationship with our Savior. This is a love relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And friends, you may not like 
the tone of this sermon. But let me just tell you this. You need to have a revelation of the holiness of God. It is only when you have a revelation of the holiness of God that you will be able to understand why God's wrath is upon the sins of mankind. Only when you understand His absolute perfection will you realize what pain and what sorrow you bring to the heart of Jesus Christ. And friends, Perhaps there are some of us here right now, you're holding on to certain sins. You're not willing to give it up. You're enjoying them. In fact, you feel incomplete, perhaps, without those sins in your life. You just have to have your fix, so to speak. My friends, those things you have to give up in the same way that Abraham gave up his Isaac. And we need to be able to do that as well. We need to be able to, to come to the point wherein we say, Lord, you and you alone are enough. In fact, Lord, you are more than enough. May we come to that point, brothers and sisters, that, that we mourn because we see that this is something that brings pain to the heart of God. A man also mourns because he discovers that there is a war in his members. There's a spiritual war taking place. Our sinful flesh is still there, but we now have the divine nature of God, and it is at war with each other. It's pulling us in, in different directions. The flesh is pulling us towards sin, and the Spirit of God is pulling us towards godliness. And remember this, we're not powerless. Some of us say, Pastor Mel, you know what? I... I can't help myself. I'm just so weak. I'm just so powerless. My life is hopeless. No, friend, remember this. If you have Christ, you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved us. Amen? Remember this. For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. Amen? And let me just say this. It is only when you are genuinely mourning over sin that you will be truly happy. I don't know if some of you have experienced this, but when you kneel down before God after God reveals His absolute holiness before you and you realize that you have offended Him and you kneel down, you prostrate yourself before the ground and you start weeping, what do you feel after you've wept? What do you feel after you have repented? Isn't it true that after you have repented, after you have wept, after you have confessed, you sense this release, this great, mighty, powerful release, and you sense the manifest presence of God. You feel God's tender love and embrace upon you. You feel so loved, so forgiven, and so cleansed that it gives you overflowing joy and happiness. Amen? That is why blessed is the man who mourns. Amen? Happy is the man who mourns. And I'd like to be able to point out in conclusion, it is only those who are genuine Christians who can truly mourn 
in a spiritual and biblical way. And so here's my challenge for those who do not yet have, do not yet have Christ in their lives. The only way you can enter into genuine sorrow for sin is when you have this relationship with Him. And how do you have this relationship with Him? Not by good works. Not by earning the favor of God. You can never earn the favor of God. And you can never ever reach the standard of God. So what do you rely on? You rely not on yourself but you rely on Christ and Christ alone. You rely completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why He suffered and died, not because you could save yourself. He died and suffered for your sins because He knew you could not save yourself. So here's what you do. Throw yourself into the loving arms of Jesus Christ and say, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And you know what? Though your sins be as scarlet, he will wash it white as snow. Amen? You will be as clean as ever. So again, let me ask you, are you a genuine mourner? If you are, then you're fine. If not, take this occasion while you're sit seated down to just come before God and say, Lord, save my soul. I want to have this relationship with you. Take me to yourself. Save me, Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. I repent, Lord. Change me. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And let me tell you, if you pray that prayer, prayer sincerely from the bottom of your heart, the promise of the Bible is you shall have eternal life, and your name shall never be erased from the book of life. Amen? because our God and only our God is faithful. Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you, Father. Lord, I know that there are some people who feel heavy right now. And the heaviness is not brought about by any trial or any adversity. The heaviness that they are feeling right now has come as a result of sin. Sin that is unrepented of. Sin that is not given up. Sin that continues to stab your heart. I pray, Father, that you will grant release to these people. I pray, O oh God, that right now there will be genuine mourning and sorrow for sin. I pray that right now, Father, they will release themselves into your loving hands and confess their sins, Lord. And Father, the Bible says times of refreshing will come when we repent. And that is what we are claiming right now in the name of Jesus. Let there be times of refreshing upon those who will genuinely repent of their sins, those with genuine sorrow for sin, O oh God. May you bring about cleansing and washing and refreshing, O oh Father. O oh Father, embrace us in your tender in your tender arms, O oh God. Bring us to yourself. And Lord, we just want to thank you for this morning. And we know, O oh God, that you who began a good work will complete it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is our hope, O God, because you are a faithful Lord. So we thank you and bless you. And Lord, whatever has been achieved today, we give you all the honor, even as we thank you also for our tithes and offerings. And all of God's people say, Amen and Amen.